Welcome to the Notion Club Podcast. We're talking today about a 19th century author named Amanda McKittrick Ross, who was a favorite author of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien's The Inklings, and also one of our favorites, though perhaps not for reasons you might imagine. Every now and then, a writer comes along whose writing is so incredibly bad, it's awesome. Amanda McKittrick Ross was perhaps the worst writer that ever lived, and reading her books today can be a source of amusement and instruction. This is episode 18 of The Notion Club. talking about Amanda McKittrick Ross, who a lot of people haven't heard of, and we love spreading the Amanda McKittrick Ross gospel. (laughs) And this is actually a writer that the Inklings were very fond of for the same reasons that we are. And they love to read excerpts of her books and see who could keep a straight face, who could not break into uncontrollable laughter, reading excerpts of Irene Ittlesley. (laughs) A lot of people have probably come across her name reading the biography of Humphrey Carpenter's biography of the Inklings without realizing just who she was and how unusual her writing truly was. Might be fun just to start with a duel. I'd like to challenge you to a duel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so what the Inklings would do, Tolkien and Lewis particularly, would uh, have Amanda McKittrick Ross read-offs, essentially, like Mm -hmm. competitions to see how far they could read in her work without breaking down into laughter. Right. That's something that we've done for, I don't know, how many years now? Yeah, we've carried these old books. We we both have a 1926 edition of Irene Ittlesley that we've carried around to coffee shops and on camping trips, and it's always a lot of fun to break this out and (laughs) and read anywhere, uh, really, from the book. (laughs) Maybe this will give you a little feel for what Amanda McKittrick Ross's work was like. This was published in 1926, but uh, Amanda McKittrick Ross published... First, she self-published this, and then it was later later, uh, published by the Nonsuch Press, and she was delighted that it was published, but she didn't realize it was published so that people could laugh at it, essentially. (laughs) She thought she was becoming a peer of uh, Shakespeare and the yeah, classic and, authors. And Dickens, yeah. And really, she was being laughed at. Don't, don't even smile. Right, I, I will yeah. not be smiling. <laughs> Chapter 1. Sympathize with me indeed. Ah, no. Cast your sympathy on the chill waves of troubled waters. Fling it on the oases of futurity. Dash it against the rock of gossip. Or better still, allow it to remain within the false and faithless bosom of buried scorn. Such were a few remarks of Irene as she paced the beach of limited freedom, alone and unprotected. Sympathy can wound the breast of trodden patience. It hath no rival to ensure the feelings we possess, save that of sorrow. The gloomy mansion stands firmly within the ivy-covered, stoutly built walls of Dunfarm, vast in proportion and magnificent in display. It has been built over three hundred years, and its structure stands respectably distant from modern advancement, and in some degrees it could boast of architectural designs rarely, if ever, attempted since its construction. The entrance to this beautiful home of Sir Hugh Dunfern, the present owner, is planned on most antique principles. 
Nothing save an enormous iron gate meets the gaze of the visitor, who is at first inclined to think that all public rumors relative to its magnificence are only the utterances of the boastful and idle, nor until within its winding paths of finest pebble, studded here and there with huge stones of unpolished granite, could the mind for a moment conceive or entertain the faintest idea of its quaint grandeur. <laughs> what the heck is she talking about? <laughs> Beautiful, however, as Dunfern Mansion may seem to be the anxious eye of the beholder, yet it is not altogether free from mystery. Whilst many of its rooms with walls of crystal are gorgeously and profusely furnished, others are locked incessantly against the foot of the cautious intruder, having in them only a few traditional relics of no material consequence whatever, or even interest to any outside the ancestral line of its occupants. It has been the chief subject of comment among the few distinguished visitors welcomed within its spacious apartments, why seemingly the finest rooms the mansion owned were always shut against their eager and scrutinizing gaze, or why, when referred to by any of them, the matter was always treated with silence. All that can now be done is merely to allow the thought to dwindle into bleak oblivion until aroused to that standard of disclosure which defies hindrance. Within the venerable walls surrounding this erection of amazement and wonder may be seen species of trees rarely if ever met with, yea, within the beaded borders of this grand old mansion the eye of the privileged beholds the magnificent lake, studded on every side with stone of costliest cut and finish. The richest vineries, the most elegant ferns, the daintiest conservatories, the flowers and plants of almost every clime in abundance, the most fashionable walks, the most intricate windings that imagination could possibly conceive or genius contrive. In fact, it has well been named the Eden of Luxury. <laughs> chapter that was chapter one. I know you're. I know you want to know what happens next. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, so the question is. What, what just happened? Heck, yeah, what, what the just heck happened? is she talking about? <laughs> what just happened? We don't know. I mean, it, it is an art to say so much and say nothing at all. Right. It is amazing what she, she can do. This was a lady who thought she was utterly brilliant. Yeah. So brilliant, in fact, that no one seemed to appreciate just how amazing no, she was. No one could comprehend her infinite brilliance. Right. She lived in Ireland... Uh, in Northern Ireland, and she was sort of a, what you might call a self-protected, delusional writer who was reaching so hard for poetry that what she wound up with was something far <laughs> short, but awesome. She very, this is what, this is what you call purple prose, right? Writing that is so florid, so flowery that it, it obfuscates the very meaning of it. And there's actually a whole contest. Uh, there's the bulwer Lytton contest that comes out of San Jose. And you've probably heard of it. It's a dark and stormy night. And, and people will come up with funny lines, but they're doing it on purpose. The big difference with Amanda McKittrick-Ross is she was absolutely serious about her work. She didn't think it was funny at all. So here's an example from the bulwer Lytton Fiction Contest uh, from the University of San Jose. This is the 2020 Grand Prize winner here from Lisa Kluber of San Francisco. Her dear John missive flapped unambiguously in the windy breeze, hanging like a pizza menu on the doorknob of my mind. <laughs> 
What is it about the badness of Amanda McKittrick Ross that makes her awesome? <laughs> well, I was thinking about that, and we had also talked about, well, we we see this phenomenon crop up pretty often. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> People inadvertently channeling Amanda McKittrick Ross in their own writing. <laughs> right. It's a kind of conceitedness. Mm-hmm. It's like a but, poetic conceit right. is what it really, a really badly executed poetic conceit. Mm-hmm. When you think that you're, the more words you use, and the more obtuse the description the more Mm -hmm. artful it is like she just said in that passage that I read about the ancestral occupants whatever just the most roundabout academics are actually guilty of this quite a bit yeah right with their very circumlocutional independent clauses like the more independent clauses you throw in the more scholarly I mean it's kind of like you know if you're writing a college essay you You just fluff it up you never use one word when you can use ten (laughs) right because you're going for that word count yeah right and this is a similar kind of conceit and the other thing that she does is she doesn't come right at it you know we're so used to the prose that has come down to us from the likes of Hemingway and guys who could cut prose down to the bone like the editing of uh, Max Perkins and you know these these guys who were brutally severe with prose mm-hmm. and strip down just tell tell it in this as just the facts ma'am type type mentality right but here we go way back to the 19th century there was a greater tolerance for flowery language in the first place people mm-hmm. tended to be readers they had a higher tolerance but she took it to a level that was just out of this world. And one of the ways she did it was with alliterations. Yeah. So as often as she could, which is something that is che- we think is cheesy, even in poetry, it's kind of right. like, all right, yeah. you get it. It's, yeah. That's really waving a big flag, like, look at this. Mm-hmm. But she would do it within the line as often as and as much as possible. Yeah. So as much as I can understand about this story, there's a husband and wife. They're newly married. They're sort of estranged from one another. And so he's sitting in his study, Sir John. He's sitting in his study. She's knocking at the door. And this is the conversation that ensues if you can follow it. Follow it if you dare. <laughs> Soon after its delivery, a slight tap was heard at the door of Sir John's study, this room being always his favorite haunt, where he sat beside a bright and glowing fire, engaged in sullen thought, and with an imperious come in, he still remained in the same thinking posture, nor was he aware for fully five minutes or so that his intruder was no other than she whom he so recently ordered into his presence. <laughs> That's the other thing. The other thing she random. does, the exclamation marks. <laughs> like, why is that there? We don't know, but it's fun. Yeah. Gazing up in a manner which startled the cold-hearted woman not a little, he requested her to have a seat right opposite his, to which she instantly complied. At this moment, the snow was wafting its flaky handfuls thickly against the barred enclosures of Dunfern Mansion, and chilly as nature appeared outside, it was similarly so indoors for the fond and far-famed husband of Lord Dilworth's charge. (laughs) Chilly as nature appeared. (laughs) Matters had appeared so unpleasant and altogether bewildering of late that Sir John formed a resolution to bring them to a crisis. Looking fully into the face that seemed so lovely just now, with the dainty spots of blazing ire enlivening the... I'm I'm the one reading. You're sabotaging my reading. I should get points. I'm just trying... I'm trying to visualize dainty spots of blazing ire. Don't you see the dainty spots of blazing ire? Sir John began. Irene... If I may use such familiarity, I have summoned you hither, it may be, to undergo a stricter examination than your present condition probably permits. 
But knowing as you should, my life must be miserable under this growing cloud of unfathomed dislike, I became resolved to end, if within my power, such contentious and unladylike conduct as that practiced by you towards me of late. It is now quite six months, yea, weary months, since I shielded you from open penury and insult, which were bound to follow you as well as your much-loved protectors who sheltered you from these the pangs of penniless orphanage, and during these six months, which naturally should have been the pet period of nuptial harmony, it has proved the hideous period of howling dislike. I, as you see, am tinged with slightly snowy tufts, the result of stifled sorrow and care concerning you alone, and on the memorable day of our alliance, as you are well aware, the black and glossy locks of glistening glory clown... <laughs> <laughs> The black and glossy locks of glistening glory crowned my brow. Try saying that four times. At, at least it's iambic. It is kind of. I'm <laughs> trying to make it more poetic than it really is. There dwelt then, just six months this day, no trace of sorrow or smothered woe, no variety of color where it is and shall be so, long as I exist, no furrows of grief could then be traced upon my visage. But alas, now I feel so changed. And why? because I have dastardly and doggedly been made a tool of treason in the hands of the traitorous and unworthy. I was enticed to believe that an angel was always hovering around my footsteps when moodily engaged in resolving to acquaint you of my great love and undying desire to place you upon the highest pinnacle possible of praise and purity within my power to bestow. I was led to believe that your unbounded joy and happiness were never at such a par as when sharing them with me. Was I falsely informed of your ways and worth? Was I duped to ascend the ladder of liberty, the hill of harmony, the tree of triumph, and the rock of regard? And when wildly manifesting my act of ascension, was I to be informed of treading still in the valley of defeat? Am I, who for nearly forty years was idolized by a mother of untainted and great Christian bearing to be treated now like a slave? Why and for what am I thus dealt with? Am I to foster the opinion that you treat me thus on account of not sharing so fully in your confidence as it may be another? Or is it, can it be, imaginative that you have reluctantly shared, only shared with me that which I have bought and paid for fully? It's so natural, the dialogue. I just, I wish I could... Can it be that your attention has ever been or is still attracted by another who, by some artifice or other, had the audacity to steal your desire for me and hide it beneath his pillaged pillow of poverty, there to conceal it until demanded with my ransom? Speak, Irene, wife, woman, do not sit in silence and allow the blood that now boils in my veins to ooze through cavities of unrestrained passion and trickle down to drench me with its crimson hue. Speak, I implore you, for my sake, and act no more the deceitful Duchess of Nantes, who, when taken to task by the great Napoleon for refusing to dance with him at their state ball, replied, You honored me too highly, acting the hypocrite to his very face. Are you doing likewise? Here, Sir John, whose flushed face, swollen temples, and fiery looks were the image of indignation, restlessly awaited her reply. <laughs> just such stunningly natural and effort, really effortless yeah, dialogue. Yeah, effortless, I mean, yeah. It just flows off the tongue. Mm. That's one of my favorite sections of dialogue. <clears throat> really a in, in monologue. All of English literature. Really all of, <laughs> yes, all of English literature. Yeah, favorite 
phrase of ours has been the, pi- the pillaged <laughs> pillow of poverty. The beach of unlimited freedom and the pillaged pillow of poverty. Which my sister actually made me a pillow that <laughs> hand-stitched that says the pillaged pillow of poverty. Right. Which I display proudly in my window in my room. Really all the pillows at my house are pillaged pillows of poverty, <laughs> but that's, that's neither here nor there. And it goes on. Oh, it goes yeah, on yeah. for the whole the whole have you read the whole thing through? Like, nope. No, I yeah. can't say that I have either, but <laughs> I'm sure it would be an interesting process. 151 pages of that. And and it you kind of the process of reading this is and this is why when you first come to her, it's hard not to just bust out laughing because there's this mental it does something to you mentally. It washes over you. And it's kind of like feeling the ground fall out from under your feet, like meaning starts to depart very quickly. And you, you're you reading words that you don't have any cognitive grasp of what's going on. And you start to feel like you're on laughing gas. And it's really, it's, <laughs> it's really entertaining. I, I recommend everyone to try it. Her books are actually very hard to find. Mm-hmm. We These editions, I think we paid... Um, maybe 40 some pounds yeah. in British pounds for these yeah. had them shipped, uh, you know, overseas, but you can find, you can find PDFs of her work online. I think there's some on Google, Google books and Irene Ittleslay is, I think still in print. Um, but some of her other, even more obscure works are, are like harder the, to find. Uh, which book is it where she names all of the characters after fruit fruits? Yeah. yeah Helen <laughs> Huddleston. <laughs> Which note the alliteration in the title? Yeah, right. Yeah, so in Helen Huddleston, there's Lord Raspberry, Cherry Raspberry, Sir Peter Plum, Christopher Courant, the Earl of Grape, Madame Pear, and I think there's some other alliterations. Jack Ludan uh, wrote a, a really interesting biography of, of McKittrick Ross in 1954. It, it's out of print now, and this. This biography called Oh Rare Amanda is actually almost as hard to find as the works of Ross herself. But it's if you're interested in Amanda McKittrick Ross, it's really the go-to biography, the only. And he even jokes about that, that this was going to be the first and last biography of Amanda McKittrick Ross. The, the interesting thing about her is she had a lot of admirers who treated her work the exact same way we are love mm-hmm. to read it out loud mm-hmm. they had dinners where they would speak to one another in this flowery language they called them um, delena delaney dinners that's another title of her books and they they loved to mock her work and it was so hard to get hold of a copy that sometimes they would actually copy out passages by hand. And another thing they would do was to write to Amanda McKittrick Ross herself a flattering letter saying, you know, I love your work so much. It's so hard to find a copy. Boy, I sure wish I could get hold of a copy because I sure do love your work. (laughs) And sometimes she would write back and enclose a copy because Mm -hmm. a lot of these were self-published. And so it was sort of a pastime to see if you could get acquire a copy. And that's why the Nonsuch Press finally published Irene Ittleslay mm-hmm. so that people could get their hands on, on this. Well, didn't her biographer ask her once, why, why, he did. Did, you, why did you name this character Yeah, that's the Raspberry? Jack Ludan actually met her on several occasions, once had tea in her house. And he describes this hilarious scene where he sits down with her and and he's, you know, he's got to tread very carefully because he knows the the game, but mm-hmm. he's got to he's got to be really respectful. And so he says, you know, why was it that you named the main character in Helen Huddleston Lord Raspberry? <laughs> and you know, he describes her tea 
just stopping on the way to her mouth and just looking at him and saying, well, what else would I have named him? <laughs> and that's, he says, when he realized that she had no concept whatsoever of the humor, the, mm-hmm. the latent humor in her work. And it was entirely unintentional. I, I mean, I kind of wonder if that was the problem. Like she had, she wasn't mm-hmm. able to understand humor. Right. That's kind of, there's something about noticing the badness in your own writing is kind right. of noticing the unintentional humor of it. You know, and... It's a really weird phenomenon, this kind of thing, which mm-hmm. you see occurring not just in literature, right. although we, there's another definitely, famous example. Yeah, yeah, we we've definitely seen it have personal experiences right. of this. <laughs> we we have our own personal anatomicatrix Rosses that we that do. shall we, not we've be. We've come named. across some from time to time, which cannot be named. <laughs> it's not simply bad writing. Like right. if it were bad writing, it would. It wouldn't be fun. It would be banal. But it's almost like it's a combination between an utter lack of skill. Right. It's going to be gloriously with bad. Like an egomaniacal, <laughs> yeah. superhuman yeah. pride right. in, in this ability that you think you are a virtuoso. Right. But you don't have the skills to do the basic stuff. Right. It takes a, it's almost like we're talking about the conditions, the perfect conditions that form this storm, how this, you know, this low pressure mass of ignorance and then this high pressure mass of, you know, ability to write long-winded sentences came together over the Midwest <laughs> and formed the per- perfect tornado <laughs> yeah. of literary disaster that was Amanda McKittrick Ross. And the amazing thing, when you learn about her life uh, in this book, it's sort of amazing that she wrote it all. She wasn't a reader. Yeah. She didn't read other people. There were a couple of books, and incidentally, one of them, the first sentence is almost verbatim. There are whole passages that are almost verbatim. Like She was very narrowly influenced by a couple of books, but she did not read widely. She was not aware of her contemporaries very, very little. Someone sent her a copy of... Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, you know, Lewis Carroll, who was a contemporary of hers, sent her a copy. She read it, hated it, didn't find it funny or amusing, charming, none of that, and was just utterly perplexed as to how it could be so popular. In fact, she she wrote a couple letters to her publisher trying to find out because she heard that someone had paid 15,000 pounds for the original manuscript. (laughs) And so she started, well, if they paid that for that, what would they pay for one of mine? Because mine are way better. You know, that sort of ignorance. And really, it was her isolation and ignorance combined with the ability to write sentences and the determination and the arrogance to think it should be published that created this phenomenon. Another famous example of this phenomenon is the singer Florence Foster Jenkins. Right. Which there's a great film that came out in 2016 starring Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a biography of yeah, well, her, her and her later years. And I mean, she can't, she cannot sing. But she doesn't know it. But she doesn't know it. Yeah, she thinks she's incredible. everybody conspires to keep the secret from Mm -hmm. her because she's this great benefactor for classical music. Right. And, and so they, you know, they need her money, her money. Right. And so they flatter her Mm -hmm. into thinking that she's this And everyone's trying to keep a straight face. Right. While she's singing. While singing. And, you know, the film does a great job of painting a very sympathetic picture of her. You know, she is in many senses the perfect amateur. You know, Mm -hmm. the person who loves the thing, you know. Right. Like, she obviously doesn't have the skill. Right. 
but she has a deep appreciation for it. And she probably has a deep knowledge of it too, you know, just she she doesn't have the vocal chops to to right. sing the kinds of stuff that, you know, art song and arias from operas. She she doesn't have the ability to do that. But Actually, she's got we, the look too, like she's elegant yeah, and she's right. got the flowing gown. Yeah. This is set yeah. in the 20s, right? And actually we can listen to a clip of her singing of the oh, real Florence Foster Jenkins singing the aria from Queen of the Night. her to perform in Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. and people were literally having to be carried out of the building <laughs> in uncontrollable fits of laughter <laughs> and it stunned her she finally realized what was going on I think she, she read a, a critical response oh, okay right after the performance yeah at the, ne- I, in the I next can, week and then she that. died like almost right away yeah, so she she read the battled the untreated syphilis, which mm-hmm. wrecked her nervous system. Right. And so this was just kind of the the last straw. One of the critics says that uh, Mrs. Jenkins has a great voice. In fact, she can sing everything except notes. <laughs> <laughs> Much of her singing was hopelessly lacking in a semblance of pitch. But the further a note was from its proper elevation the more the audience laughed and applauded. This is from the New York Post. Lady Florence indulged last night in one of the weirdest mass jokes New York has ever seen. And I think Florence Foster Jenkins actually read those. Yeah, they couldn't keep it from her. And the the end of the movie, she says, one of the last things she says is, you know, um, they can say I I can't sing, but they can't say I didn't sing. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, and it's uh, it's tragic. It's hilarious, but it's also tragic. The the big difference between Florence Foster Jenkins and Amanda McKittrick Ross is that, you know, Amanda McKittrick Ross would have read those kinds of criticisms that yeah. killed right. Florence Foster Jenkins and not believe it. You know, right. she never did believe it. And the great thing about her responses is they're like these boomerangs she throws at them, and and they wind up coming back and hitting her in her own head. One of the critics panned one of Amanda McKittrick Ross's books, mm-hmm. so she she responded uh, in a preface to her new book, right. Delina Delaney, by branding the critic a quote clay crab of corruption <laughs> yeah, that was ba- that was barry Payne, and, and he actually and, did more to sell her books than right, anyone else yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he celebrated her 
although not in the way that she wanted to be celebrated. And and she suggested that he was so hostile only because he was secretly in love with her. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. How how much of an ego <laughs> do you have to have? Okay. And I think that's that's one of her the cautionary tale here. Well, that's the caution. It's this kind of the source of the humor that what right. you're reading is the ego manifest on the page. Right. You know? It's a reductio of ego in a way that we don't often get to see. So even at its most absurd, she takes it utterly seriously. Utterly like seriously. so in her novel Helen Huddleston um, all the characters are named after fruit, like right. Lord Lord Raspberry. There's right. also Earl of Grape and Madame Pear. Mm-hmm. And so Ross writes about Madame Pear, quote, She had a swell staff of sweet-faced helpers, swathed in stratagem, whose members and garments glowed with the lust of the loose, sparkled with the tears of the tortured, shone with the sunlight of bribery, dangled with the diamonds of distrust, slashed with the sapphires of scandals. <laughs> this is, there's actually another sentence from uh, Helen Huddleston. Uh, it says, describing a, cross, uh, a transatlantic crossing, uh, Miss Primrose Carothers then entered to take charge until the return of Henry Huddleston to his native soil, and warmly wishing all three bon voyage, they entered a brougham to take them to Kingston, Canada at last was reached after a very pleasant trip across the useful pond that stimulates the backbone of commerce more than any known element since Noah, captain of the flood, kicked the bucket. <laughs> stimulates the backbone of, what is it, commerce? Stimulates the backbone of commerce. <laughs> Speaking of her replies to critics, she wrote this after, after None Such Press published um, this edition that we have of Irene Ittleslay, she wrote this to the uh, publisher about her critics in 1927. She said, I'm pleased to say that this work now rests upon the shelf of classic, for which reason I presume the critics lately have done their utmost to murder both the book and its author. Nevertheless, I still live and this book shall never die. Their bayonets of bastard sheen, with their scurrilous punctures of jealous jadery, affect neither the book nor its author financially, but on the contrary, will not be overlooked by me in the near future. <laughs> she was so vindictive. That's their bayonets hilarious. of bastard sheen. That, that's, uh, that's incredible. <laughs> bastard sheen. <laughs> You know, of course, there are going to be people who think that we're cruel for laughing at. Oh, sure. But, you know, it it actually poses a lot of interesting questions about skill in art, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's so much tolerance for, you know, I lived in, (laughs) I lived in Cleveland for seven years, basically. And, you know, if you just walk through the contemporary gallery Mm -hmm. at CMA, the Cleveland Art Museum, there is no technique that goes into the paintings there. Right. It's a philosophical statement, which has led to some really great practical jokes in the art museum. (laughs) People leaving. Leaving like glasses on the the floor and standing there and looking at it and Everyone Singing joining crowd, them, yeah. yeah. Everyone taking it. Yeah, the pineapple on the table. Yeah, and the whole phenomenon of the the emperor's new clothes. Yeah, right. You know, which it's interesting that we lampoon these people when they serve no other useful purpose. Which, but if they serve a useful purpose, we will gladly exactly. go along. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's the same thing. Like someone like Florence Foster Jenkins or Amanda McKittrick Ross. It is the emperor's new clothes. Them thinking that they are this great thing. Right. 
But, you know, with the majority of contemporary art, the <laughs> joke's on us. Like, right. we're the ones being taken in. Yeah, and we don't have them. enough, I don't know, integrity or wherewithal to say, actually, there, you know, there are no clothes. Right. Well, it's the little kid who has the audacity to say, he's naked. <laughs> no clothes. You know, he's, he's completely without any kind of guile you know and that's right that's the interesting social dynamic of we want to participate in something that makes us feel good about ourselves Mm -hmm. so you can you can stick a pair of eyeglasses in the corner and and draw a crowd by taking it seriously because everyone wants to be part of this highbrow culture Mm -hmm. and it just lends itself to parody so well right um, and, you know, and the funny thing about someone like Amanda McKittrick Ross is she is absolutely an elitist, mm-hmm. thinking that she yeah. is in the ranks of the highest literary artists, yeah. Shakespeare, Dickens. And all that would really take for her to have, in our society now, all that would take for her to be considered very seriously would be some qualifying you know, political usefulness and right. then we would be it would we would be yep. demanded to well, take I mean, work seriously. Frankly, I'm surprised that she doesn't have more attention in scholarship now. <laughs> you know. The funny thing is if she was a scholar now in academia, she would be so successful. Oh, yeah. To be able to write utter drivel. Oh yeah, we could do a know? whole episode about scholarly drivel. Speaking of practical jokes, <laughs> you have a piece that you wrote sort of in this vein mocking the sort of empty (laughs) scholarship that is passing for scholarship these days. Mm -hmm. So in my freshman year, I took a a literature class, and I think it was a senior class. So I got one of those forms to sign that basically, I mean, there's a form for everything if you want to do something. There is red tape to cut through. I mean, the great thing about red tape is you can cut through it. (laughs) So, (laughs) So after the class, you know, there was everything was politicized. Like I remember there was a, a guest speaker who came in and he was having us read the sonnet by Shakespeare mm-hmm. and having us analyze it. And he, everything was deconstructed into a political right. narrative. Of course. I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> what else are you going to do? And so the sonnet was, you know, when my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her though I know she lies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so he said, why don't we take a minute and let's go around the room and see, you know, what do you think the word made, like made of truth? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what do you think that, what does that suggest? And people were talking about, you know, constructionism stuff. And uh-huh. I was like, no, that's not, not quite it. And then finally somebody says, like, made? Like a maiden? Like the maiden of truth? He's like, yes, yes, it's a maid, like a maiden. Of tr- and then he goes off on this like feminist spiel about, uh-huh. I don't know, it was t- wow. total equivocation. But right. that's the kind of stuff that we were doing. So I wrote a fake essay about Hamlet, called it Mouth of Marbles, <laughs> and by Philip Peterkin Sneedy. Um, and I photoshopped it to look like scans of an old book. Like a facsimile. But there are some telltale thing. I mean, for one thing, it's absurd, you know? <laughs> And it's published, <laughs> it's published by Dunstan University Press. Mm-hmm. This was about half an inch deep. In other words, like a quick, a quick search on the internet would have blown oh, yeah. this wide open. It, yeah, exactly. So, and, you know, I made up every citation was to a fake book, mm-hmm. um, to books like The Serum and Cerebrum by Alwyn Gerstner. <laughs> <laughs> or In Defense of Tozy by Brendan Chip. <laughs> I mean, what is Tozy? <laughs> what is Tozy? <laughs> worth defending that's what right so so i'll just i'll read some excerpts and oh and and i i eventually i sent this to my teacher eventually to, right. to get um their feedback 
Can one debate over the emblem of desire, or care to love the cynical breath of our beloved lost hero? I avoid the term tragic hero for obvious reasons, W.T. Barnacles explains in her essay, The Loss of Lost Lovers. And Hamlet, a play heralded by many to be Shakespeare's greatest work, and by a few more to be his worst, and by others to be midway between his pendulum swing of skill. (laughs) Channeling some Amanda there. The deportment of his characters, each cunningly wrought with life, is never so swiftly divined, nor wisely so, as is their outward indication of inward humor. (laughs) But this does not say, though many have claimed wide extent of provision, that in total nothing can be disinterred from them. To the contrary, what we see may yet be what we get when, concerning the words of honest characters, nothing but simple truth is presented. Mm. So that's the opening paragraph. <laughs> that's great. So I, I, I take, you know, to be or not to be and take it line by line and then right. do kind of an, a deconstruction into drivel, essentially. Right. So the, the line, whether it is nobler of the mind to suffer... Posterior to the modern age, there were a few effective painkillers. As Davidoff Calloway mentions in his book, The King and High, Medieval <laughs> Pharmaceuticals, <laughs> there was a great medicinal divide among the classes, not only widening the economic chasm between peasants and their lords, exacerbating the swelling symptoms of bastard feudalism. <laughs> swelling symptoms of bastard feudalism supplying physically and financially inept members as vassals for military service but just as well induced illness and disease oftentimes sparking far-spread epidemics the footnote is e.g the black death (laughs) so for the line the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune here are planted the first seeds of our lost hero's philosophical inclinations, not to say, I should note, planted in the mind of Hamlet, but in that of his audiences. Through the subtly ingenious layering of associations, we are swayed towards exactly this that our dear playwright did intend. It is never a surprise to dig up religious symbolism in the words of his characters. Many quibble and quarrel over this uh, footnote in significance. See The Godless Bodkin by Igor Kaminsky. (laughs) (laughs) But in such cases, as here presented, the evidence is as clear-cut as a fossil. Hamlet makes a comparison between the biblical and the pagan, slings, a reference to David's great battle with the half-giant, arrows, a tribute to the choice tool of Cupid, contrasting the sincere with the absurd, yet chiseling a wise truth and negative value, that there is no true distinction between them. Biblical belief was but the law, while all were discouraged from such silly tales as of Cupid. Hamlet, by contrast, and in the great confidence or foolishness of a rebel, tells us that both are one and the same, the either no more absurd than the other sincere. Moreover, he goes on to call this fortune outrageous, fortune a word cunning as to bridge the gap between providentialism and the mythical interference of the gods, such as Cupid between two otherwise predetermined lovers, which brings both to the realistic acceptance of their absurdity. His reference to Cupid goes deeper, however. To suffer a sling is only so much as a blow to the head, but to suffer an arrow is a piercing. Hamlet says that he suffered this piercing of the arrow, and because the piercing is dealt of Cupid's blow, the wound is of the heart a yearning of desire. 
but the more difficult task is to determine the landing of the sister arrow to, in so many words, discover whom his desire is placed. Ample evidence points to Gertrude, <laughs> who, of course, is his mother. Right, right. And by the way, that's a legitimate theory of scholarship. That, oh, yeah, no doubt. You know, an Oedipus Rex kind of thing. Right. Then there's a bracket Editor's note, in the first edition, Sneedy discusses Freudian concepts between pages 9 and 58. These pages have been omitted from the second edition. End bracket. But I digress. Let us return to Hamlet. <laughs> so I, I have a footnote here. In the footnote, I quote, like I, I drag a direct quote from Amanda McEtra Cross. Nice. So this is just a, a, a random footnote. Uh, footnote 13. This would be determined by deal-making, the composing of the policies of truces thus signed by each king or his instanding officer. See Survey and Danish Medieval Culture by J.D. Mustards and Carrie Kitchens, pages 677 to 709. Admittedly, there have been many mornings to which I have woken with the knowledge that the greater portion of my career was, if not dedicated wholly, built mostly on these precious pages. Their influence in the study of Danish culture could not be rightly traded for even the priceless artifactual find of our century. Hamlet would not be Hamlet without them, and what we know of the dear playwright's rather surreptitious intent would yet be jaded by the scrupulations and twisted speculations of fledgling scholars whose, and this is the quote uh, by Mikitra Cross, dedication has widely been the means before now of converting the stern and prejudiced with their self-gainful manipulations. <laughs> it's just utter but, drivel. Yeah, but so it kind of sums up what the, the art of self-gainful manipulations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. But the best part of the story is your teacher's response. So I, I sent this to mm -hmm. my teacher and she responded, yeah, that's on the money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's on the money. That's All on right. the money. Yeah. That is spot on. Yeah. And it, this is, that's what Douglas Murray talked about. Is there have been people that have lampooned this kind of thing and done fake fake studies, fake papers, and had mm -hmm. them published. Yep. And only later when they admitted this and sort of burst the bubble where the papers retracted mm -hmm. quietly and that sort of thing, because it's just open for parody because it's meaningless. Yep. Yep. And so there's there's become, these are the rightful heirs of Amanda McKittrick Ross today. The thing is that, you know, we tolerate this in our culture. Like so much of our culture is made up by lies like that. I mean, so so yeah. much of the of the ideologies that are mm -hmm. just destroying academia have already mm -hmm. yeah. corrupted every aspect come from scholarship exactly like that. Right. You know, it's 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 the you, equivalent of blindfolding someone and spinning them around 50 times and then telling them to find their way out of the building. Like yep. that you're doing that with words mm -hmm. and that and I, I, that is the very yeah, the that, that's the very mechanism of postmodernism yeah. to you know yeah. this idea of deferred meaning right. if you read the postmodernists why why not yeah. just spin out or drivel mm -hmm. and it, it's it's really an advanced stage it's like level four arrogance it has come to that point where anything i say is just as brilliant as anything else I, anyone else could say so right. yeah just whatever and you know at the same time in the classical music world it's a very interesting place to be because there are standards you know mm -hmm. i mean right now the standard for a classical musician is essentially perfection right in some ways, it has to be that. I mean, if you listen to it, if you sit in a concert hall and listen to one of the great orchestras in the world, 
that's an experience that can't be substituted by any other. It's right. transcendent. And it wouldn't be possible without that standard. Sure. But at the same time, you know, we have this attitude of anything goes like mm-hmm. you know there there are no standards yeah, there you know standards are structures of bigotry essentially mm-hmm. yeah we're philosophically schizophrenic in that way like we have these we're platonist when it comes to music mm-hmm. but over here in literature you know we're going to be utter deconstructionists and, right. and just well make, i mean make a parody of ourselves not see the the problem is we're just as much and probably even more so deconstructionists when it comes to music than we are in any other art form and that's the hypocrisy of it you know mm. part of the problem is with music is there's a divide between music scholars who are musicologists who aren't performers and then the performers who are not scholars you know Mm -hmm. they're all extremely knowledgeable in music but they're not writing scholarly papers so you have the people who have spent their life in a trade like construction or woodworking or like a swordsmith becoming masters at that trade and then the people who are masters at their trade know what a good sword is know what a good performance is And then the scholars are the ones who are saying, actually, good music is simply a construction of the white patriarchal oppression, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so we need to deconstruct it, um, tear it down. It's interesting if we zip all the way back to the Inklings on a Thursday night at Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis's rooms in Magdalen College, reading from Amanda McKittrick-Ross, people busting out laughing. The reader, maybe it's Lewis himself, maybe it's someone else trying to keep a straight fit, you know. We come all the way back and we find that the further we went from truth mm-hmm. and honesty, the further we got from joy, from mirth, yeah. from any kind of humor. Right. There, you're really traveling out there. It's like a satellite leaving the earth. And the further you get from truth, the bleaker and the blacker and the darker and the, mm-hmm. the less humor there is. We find ourselves wishing that Kittrick Ross could have actually participated in the joy of laughing at herself as much as we do, because it certainly is a strange legacy she left behind. So this is sort of the strange toast we offer up to Amanda McKittrick Ross saying, here's to you, Amanda, because as you once wrote, the silvery touch of fortune is too often guilt with betrayal. The meddling mouth of extravagance swallows every desire and eats the heart of honesty with pickled pride. The imposery of position is petty and ends as it should commence with stirring strife.